As we turn our hearts to the Word of God this morning, our scripture reading is from Revelation 21, just the first eight verses this morning. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord our God, and we look to him to illuminate our hearts as we consider it together this morning. I was part of a boys club a long time ago, and one of the things that we were taught to do and had to do in order to get one of the badges that all of us wanted was to navigate across country, and they taught us how to do that with a map and a compass. And one of the things they taught us was, if you can't see your destination, if you can't see the place that you're going to, then you need a landmark behind you, and you need a compass bearing, and then as you progress, you can go forward in the right direction with reference to the things that are behind. And in that same way, we need to understand Revelation, looking backwards from chapter 21 and chapter 22 in order to make sure that we are moving on in the right direction as we approach the conclusion of the book. We look back and we take a bit of a reading this morning. So in verse 1 of our text, John wrote, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now because of that reference to a new heaven and a new earth and the sea having disappeared, there's this persistent tendency among evangelicals today to try to push off the vision that is described here to the end of time, the end of the world. Even William Hendrickson in his classic amillennial commentary, More Than Conquerors, see this, sees this as something that mostly remains to be fulfilled at some future time. He wrote, what we find here in Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5, is a description of the redeemed universe of the future as foreshadowed by the redeemed church of the present. Now, I'm glad he put that last part in. Um, that's important. And, and frankly, while I don't completely agree with him, there are far worse places where some pundits of pop eschatology have been prone to take this passage. Now, more on that 
next Lord's Day, so stay tuned. And, and if you're intrigued, then please come back. The thing is that the opening expression of this verse, kai idon in Greek, literally, and I saw. Now, whichever new version of the Bible you're using, kai idon pops up over and over and over again. It simply means, and I saw. But in order to try to make the English more readable, in scare quotes, if you're not watching me, we translate it differently. Then I saw, and I saw, and I looked. But the thing is, the reader of this work in Greek would not see it as three separate statements. The reader of this work in Greek would see the repetition of that phrase, kai idon, kai idon, kai idon. And recognize there's a reason for repetition in the way the apostles put the scriptures together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes for the sake of what we call readability, we've lost some of the keys that would help us to interpret scripture in the way that the first century church would have seen it. And that expression, kai idon, and I saw, is used eight times between chapter 19, verse 11, and chapter 21, verse 1. And every single use of kai idon marks the beginning of a vision. And each of those visions is distinct from the others, not unlike the seven seals, the seven trumpets, or the seven bowls. I've tried to make the point as we go through this book, when we have seven trumpets, don't think of those as sequential. This one, then this one, then this one, then this one. They're looking at separate things, which could be happening all at the same time or not in the order that they appear at all. So what we have in this final sequence of visions at the end of the book of Revelation is not seven events that can be placed on a timeline to indicate where each falls in sequence with the others. Instead, I, w I want you to imagine a classic work of art. And I'm, I wasn't sure about this, but I'm going to help you out. I know you can't see that very well, and that's a good thing. But what you have there is a representation of the entire ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, painted partially by Michelangelo, partially by some others. And it's kind of good that you get it in that way, because this is not like the Mona Lisa or some other classic works of art, where to truly appreciate it, you need to step back and take it all in at once. You can't do that with the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's not a single painting. It's not meant to be taken in all at once. It, it just can't be taken in that way. To appreciate it for anything more than just the scope, this massive work of art, you really have to look closer. Now, if you look closer in this case, you're going to find out that Michelangelo had a strange relationship with clothing. And there are some really inexplicable areas in this painting or in his paintings where people are not wearing what they most likely would have been wearing in the days of Noah. So having said that, little disclaimer, this is an R-rated work of art. Um, and even what's up there has been censored for your perusal this morning. But when you zoom in on what is one of the central panels, you get Michelangelo's representation of the creation 
of Adam. Whether or not that's a wise thing to do, represent God in painting, is an issue for another day. But you have to look closer to appreciate the details of each individual panel. And in fact, you have to look closer still in many of the panels to really get at the, the beauty and the majesty of, of Michelangelo's work, the, the way that he portrays the structure of a human hand and, and the idea that he's portraying there of God reaching out to Adam and Adam reaching out to God. Now you can visualize the structure of Revelation in those terms and it's the best way to visualize it. Each fresco, each panel in the book of Revelation though is a portrait of Jesus Christ. This is after all the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think I've pointed that out before. So each panel is a revelation, a portrait of Jesus, but around the edges and in between, we are given details that tie those portraits together. So John doesn't just skip from the lamb standing as if slain in the midst of the throne back in Revelation chapter 5 over to the end where the lamb, now appearing as the warrior king, is mounted on a white horse and coming forth conquering and to conquer. He gives us these portraits and he fills in the details that help us understand how the lamb and the lion and the warrior king are the same. Now we're going to be talking about this more this evening. So let me encourage you, if you have questions, join us for that. For this morning, consider the portrait of Jesus that we looked at last week in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. The first time that John uses Kai Idon and I saw, beginning this new cycle of visions. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now the description goes on for a few more verses, as we saw, but this vision of Jesus as the warrior king is the defining portrait that is pulling together all of the other visions that, that circle around it. Now, I know this is complex, um, but try to stay with me, and if I lose you, then come back this evening. Imagine that John, who was carried away in the spirit to a wilderness place in chapter 17, verse 3, where he saw the woman, the faithless bride, seated on a beast. Well, he sees that vision, and then he turns, and as he turns, it's like a curtain has been pulled back on heaven itself. And there's all of this amazing stuff that he could see. But his eyes are immediately drawn to the rider on the white horse, to this one with King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his garment and on his thigh. And of course, his eye would be drawn there. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Lord in glory prepared to ride forth, conquering, and to conquer. But no sooner has John taken in that central figure in the vision than his eyes are drawn to an angel standing in the sun, which is pretty incredible too. If, if one of us walked outside today and saw an angel standing in the sun proclaiming with a loud voice some message from God, we'd probably be pretty blown away. But 
John saw the rider on the horse, and then he saw an angel standing in the sun, and then another angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and so on, down to chapter 21, verse 1, where he kind of takes a breath, and he steps back, and he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And again, the things that John is seeing in this cycle of visions, it's it's not that they're happening sequentially. They're all at once. But he can only look at one and describe one thing at a time. I know a while back I talked about a time when Pastor Matt and I had gone walking along a creek up in Calgary. And we were kind of working through some of these structural issues at the time. And it just dawned on me, here we are, we're, we're, we're standing in this beautiful outdoor setting and there's some people walking by on the path over there and there's trees and there's a rock sticking up out of the creek and over there there's a log that's kind of stuck in the mud on the bank. And the thing is, we didn't necessarily even see those things in that order and they certainly didn't appear on the scene in that order. I would assume, for example, that all of the trees were there long before the people who were walking beneath them. It's just that we saw all of these things, and when you try to put that into words, you have to see them one at a time. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw. Imagine a young child trying to describe the moment when he steps out of the minivan where he had been playing video games on the built-in console, and realizes that while he was playing games, his parents drove to the high mountains. And he's blown away by what he sees. And later he's trying to describe it. And he's telling his grandmother, and I saw a mountain, and I saw the sun, and I saw an eagle, and I saw a bear. I've never seen anything like that place before. Now again, not that he saw all of these things in some kind of sequence, but all of these things like all of the panels in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling, they just are are, are too big a panorama. You can't take them in all at once and you can't describe them all at once. Even so, John, in this passage in Revelation, and I saw the Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, mounted on a white horse, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, and I saw a beast. And I saw another angel with a great chain, and I saw thrones, and I saw a great white throne. And then I realized I was seeing something never seen before. I was, in fact, seeing something that had long been predicted by the prophet Isaiah. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and the sea is no more. What does that mean? Well, there's not only the cycle of visions to consider if we are to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we have to do that, then John's words should take us straight to the place where they would have taken his first century audience. They would take us to Isaiah chapter 65, where God is speaking a word of judgment against his old covenant people. And in verses 15 and 16, he says, You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, 
so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Then Isaiah goes on, or God speaking through Isaiah goes on in the next couple of verses, 17 through 19. For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. And we don't have time this morning, but this evening we'll try to get to Isaiah 57 where God talks about the old earth and the old heavens, not in terms of what he created in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but in terms of bringing his people through the Red Sea out of Israel, or out of Egypt and into Israel and giving them the law at Sinai. And God in Isaiah likens that to the establishment of heavens and earth, which are more often in covenantal terms perceived as institutions than they are as the literal physical creation. Now look at that tonight. But here he says, I create a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And if this all sounds kind of familiar in Isaiah, it's because John used the exact same language in Revelation chapter 21 to talk about the exact same event in history. In Revelation 21, after Revelation 21.1, John goes on in the next verse, and I saw the holy city. So verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Chi-Idon. Verse 2, Chi-Idon, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Again, if you dig deep into the Old Testament this, you're going to find that under the Old Covenant, the dwelling place of God was with man. Just that under the Old Covenant, the dwelling place of God was a piece of real estate that wandered around the wilderness with them and eventually settled on Mount Zion where Solomon built his temple. But this is not something new. This idea that the dwelling place of God is with man. It's as old as the tabernacle and the temple. Really, it's as old as the Garden of Eden. And it's also the promise that was made of the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. They will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The dwelling place of God has been with man ever since Jesus came into this world as the Son of God to redeem us from our sin. And it has remained here. Because when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he said, now my body, the church, is the temple, the new covenant temple, the dwelling place of God is still with man. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Again, we've got to talk about this some more tonight. 
But for now, set those texts from Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 in parallel. In Isaiah, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, God says in Isaiah, and John says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Just throw this little tidbit in there. You might remember several times along the way in this journey, we've talked about the land and the sea and the heavens, not in terms of the physical cosmology of this universe, but in terms of the way it was perceived by people under the old covenant and into the new. The land represented the people of God. The sea represented not the people of God. The chaos of the unbelieving and wicked world. And so when it says here the sea was no more, it's it's not saying there's not going to be an ocean in the new creation, that you won't be able to go to the beach or something along those lines. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that in that day, that wicked, sinful, unbelieving world will have been dealt with definitively by Jesus Christ, who will either convert them to himself with the sword that comes from his mouth, the gospel, the word of truth, or will judge them with the same sword, and there will be no more sea. God said, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem. Now remember, he's talking very specifically in Isaiah about the judgment of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. But he says there's something coming. I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And John writes, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you can't make time to come to the Bible study tonight, and I will plug this shamelessly throughout, but if you can't make time to come, then go and open the book of Galatians when you get home and read in the book of Galatians about how the Apostle Paul talks about Jerusalem below, Jerusalem which is of this world, Jerusalem which is a piece of real estate in Israel, the land, which is in slavery along with her children. And then he goes on to say, but Jerusalem that is above is free. And he uses that same split idea of a physical earthly Jerusalem in contrast to the new Jerusalem, Jerusalem above, in order to establish his point in the book of Galatians. God did it in Isaiah. John is doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Revelation chapter 21. In Isaiah, God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And in Revelation 21, John emphasized with the coming of the new Jerusalem, there he will wipe away every tear. From their eyes. Again, more this evening. But understand, you have to be crying in order to have your tears wiped away. And death shall be no more. We looked at that last time. 
And we talked about how Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See why we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture? Because if we just took this piece from Revelation on its own, and we disregarded the Old Testament background, the roots of this prophecy that, that John is now addressing from a new perspective, we might get carried away. And not in a good way. Not like John was carried away in the Spirit, and he will be carried away in the Spirit again next week. We have to be careful. And of course, several of those statements, the ones that are up on the screen right now, make us want to interpret the new heaven and the new earth as the eternal state. The eternal state is what we enter after the resurrection of the body. So if you walk that through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he says, we're all going to be resurrected each in his own order. First, Christ, the first fruits. He was raised up about 2,000 years ago, give or take in a glorified body, and he ascended to the right hand of God. Then there's that spiritual resurrection that we talked about last week from Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ and raised you up and seated you with him in heavenly places. He did that in order to show principalities and powers, the wonders of his grace. You don't think God wants the principalities and powers to see the wonders of his grace until sometime into the deep future. He wanted them to see them, the wonders of his grace, in the very moment that Christ walked out of that tomb and in that ascension to the right hand of the Father where he was given a kingdom and a dominion that will last forever. I digress. The resurrections, Christ, the first fruits. Then, and this is a comprehensive list, Those who are Christ's at his coming. Again, I wasn't going to do this, but I think I will. Because we sometimes use, and I have sometimes used, the expression, the second coming. Okay? We need to stop it. We need to talk about the final coming in terms of the resurrection of the dead when Christ finally comes to raise us up physically so that we enter into that eternal state. Here's why. He came, well, he's come many times in the Old Testament. But if you wanted to think of his coming at Bethlehem as the first coming, okay, I'll grant you that one. Then think of this. In the Gospel of John, he says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, we're told in that text very specifically that he's not saying, I will come to you at the end of the world, at the resurrection of all things. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he did. He came in the form of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, according to the Nicene Creed and the Scriptures, by the way. He came to them If you wanted to put a nail into something and say, well, that had to be the second coming, then it would have to be Pentecost. 
when the Holy Spirit came to the people of God and Christ came to dwell through the Spirit in all of his people and especially in the church. So we need to get away from this idea of the second coming. Um, but Paul says, Christ the firstfruits, then those who are his at his coming, at his final coming, then comes the end. For he must reign until all of his enemies have been subdued beneath his feet. And in terms of this millennium and new heaven and new earth, don't think that Paul got it just a little wrong in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said he must reign until his enemies have been subdued because actually one popular school of understanding scripture says he must reign after all of his enemies have been subdued beneath his feet, and that is not what scripture says. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to him, and he must reign until all of his enemies have been subdued beneath his feet. And the last enemy is death. And death is subdued finally and fully when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And those who have fallen asleep in Jesus are raised up immortal and incorruptible to live forever in his presence. And at that point, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus will then turn to the Father and say, there they are. There's the kingdom that you gave me. There's the world that you sent me to reconcile. It is done. And he will give the kingdom to the Father so that God may be all in all. Go back and read that if you need to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But when we talk about the final coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, that's the end. So whatever happens before that time has to be consistent with that idea, Christ, then those who are his at his coming. So we read these statements in Revelation 21 that are made about the new heaven and the new earth, and we want to make that the eternal state after the final coming of Christ and after the resurrection of the dead. But here's the thing, Isaiah 65, verse 20 no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man, the child, in some translations, shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Did you follow that? This is very specifically talking about the new heaven and the new earth that God said he was going to create. And he says that in that new heaven, a child or someone who dies at 100 would be considered a child. Um, Douglas Wilson has written, for various reasons, I do not take the new heaven and new earth as referring to the post-final coming eternal state. The first is that the prediction of the new heaven and the earth comes from the prophet Isaiah, and he describes it for us. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, for the child shall die a hundred years old. What do people in the new heavens and the new earth do? 
Well, among other things, according to Isaiah 65, they die and they sin. That is not the post-resurrection of the dead world when all of the enemies of Christ have been finally and fully subdued to him and he gives the kingdom back to God. So this reference to new heavens and new earth in Isaiah and in Revelation, and tonight we'll see more in 2 Peter as well, is not a description of either heaven or of the creation after Christ's final coming at the resurrection of the body. Rather, what we are seeing here, what John was seeing here, is very specifically another vision, Kaidon, and I saw of what is happening during that thousand years that we talked about, when Satan is prohibited very specifically from deceiving the nations. And these are the days in which we live. There's a popular song a while back that said, these are the days of Elijah. In reality, they're not the days of Elijah, they are the days of Isaiah. They are the days foretold by the prophet Isaiah when the kingdom of God has been taken away from, as described in Isaiah 65, a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke God to his face continually, and it has been given to a people producing its fruits. Read Matthew chapter 21, 22, 23, and 24. And in Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And I saw, Kaiidon, a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and earth had passed away. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. If the Lord is willing, we're going to be looking in a lot more detail next Lord's Day at this idea of a bride adorned for her husband. But this is important. We have to touch on it here. Just note the titles given here. The holy city, New Jerusalem, they echo the writer to the Hebrews when he describes the church in Hebrews chapter 12, writing, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly, ecclesia, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, which makes perfect sense. John uses language which is used in the New Testament to describe the church. And this makes sense because in Revelation 21, verse 9, an angel will say, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then John will be carried away in the Spirit and he will be shown a more detailed version of what he has already seen. The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And let me ask you a little pop quiz here. Who is the wife of the Lamb? Who is, in Scripture, the bride of Christ? The church. Ephesians 5 is clear. We are told Christ loved the church. 
and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the work of Christ. He came to do that so that he could present the church to himself in that way. And skipping down just a couple of verses, Paul goes on, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when you see the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and when we are told that the bride of Christ is the church, we should understand that this reference in Revelation 21 is not to heaven itself. I have to hit that hard today, and I'm going to have to hit it even harder next week. Because we're accustomed to some hymns and some stories that borrow language from the description of the bride of the Lamb in Revelation 21 and 22 and make those into heaven. But it's not heaven. The streets of gold, not heaven. The pearly gates, not heaven. Descriptions of the majesty and the purity and the glory that Christ assigns to his bride, the church. We look around and we see the bride, warts and all. Jesus does not see us that way. Jesus sees us in purity and glory and holiness. Besides, how could heaven come down out of heaven. It doesn't make sense. The bride, the wife, the lamb is coming down out of heaven from God. Heaven can't, just a logic thing. And this coming of the bride to her groom explains verse 4 too. In verse 4, we're told, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away again go into this much more deeply this evening, I hope, if the Lord is willing. But Douglas Wilson explains it so concisely. He wrote, So the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, which is explicitly stated in the next section, which means that she is the Christian church. Church history is the time that it takes for this bride to walk down the aisle. And by the time she gets to the front of the cathedral, she will be without spot or blemish or wrinkle. When she arrives at that final destination, then all sorrow will have been banished and there will never again be any more tears. A couple of chapters back, we were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb which if you know anything about the weddings in that culture in that time, they were a little bit different than what they are today. But there was still that point in the ceremony where the bride appeared and was presented to her groom. There were processions of the bride and groom being led together at the place where this covenant would be formed, where they would be finally married. We could see it in those terms. You can even see it in the terms that we would do a wedding today. Um, presumably when the groom is standing here at the front of the church and the bride 
finally appears in that opening at the back of the church. He's not calculating, I don't know, it's not too late. Do I really want to go through with this? It's a done deal. He's just waiting as she approaches. And maybe if we think of that, a bride being escorted down the aisle by her father. Well, out there where daddy takes his daughter's arm or she takes his, there might be a certain nervousness on her part about what comes next. And maybe even a certain sorrow maybe a few tears about the childhood that is being left behind. I've seen brides weeping as they walk down the aisle, and I trust when I see that happening that it's not a matter of, you know, boy, I kind of regret having made this decision. But this bride is being escorted down the aisle by her father, and all of that, the childhood, that she's leaving behind, is being left behind, and when she finally reaches the front of the church and takes the arm of her groom, usually those tears have dried, and they have been replaced, if I can borrow a phrase from Peter, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Even so, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I don't believe that there could be a better picture of making all things new than a wedding, when the two become one flesh. And on that day, old things, old relationships, old ways of thinking have passed away. Life as it was is done, and all things have become new. It's worth noting two things here. First, the progressive nature of this statement. The one on the throne says, I am making all things new. So what began in the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is being worked out progressively in this church age. As Christ is making all things new, the holy city, New Jerusalem, descends from heaven as a bride coming to her beloved. I also love a line from Pastor Jeff Durbin who once noted, Jesus is not making all new things. As if the point of this passage is he's just going to burn this creation down so that he can start over from scratch. Jesus is making all things new. These words are trustworthy and true. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Because God keeps his promises. You may have heard that somewhere. He always has and he always will. And that's why even though this coming of the bride to her husband is described in progressive terms, the one seated on the throne goes on to make a definitive statement. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now the, the Greek's a little different. It's, it's not exactly the same as it is finished, uttered from the cross, but it's it's the same kind of idea. And we're getting close. We haven't quite reached the end of our text or of this cycle of visions yet, though. The one seated on the throne is still speaking in the rest of verse 6 all through the end of verse 8. To the thirsty I will give 
from the spring of the life of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Which calls to mind the question posed by the Apostle Peter in Second Peter chapter 3, which, as you can imagine, we will look at in more detail tonight. But writing at about the same time that John was writing the revelation and writing of the same event, Peter said, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Regardless of what Peter was pointing to, some people will say it was the end of the world, I don't believe it. But whatever he was pointed, pointing to in this passage, he's not saying, since all of these things are to be dissolved, eat, drink, and be merry. It's all coming to, get to work on your bucket list, folks. Time is running out. His point, whatever he's pointing to, and we'll try to establish that more firmly tonight, but his point, whatever he is pointing to is, since this is the way things are, what sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness? It was an important question then, and it remains an important question for those of us who live on this side of these things. The Alpha and Omega has promised that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will join the beasts and the dragon in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I think I said it last time. I'm going to say it again quickly. Never imagine for one second that Satan is the king or the god of anything or that hell is his domain where he rules. This lake of fire symbolizes the utter and ultimate destruction and judgment of Satan. He is not king. He is not the God of this world. He was the God of an age. But that age is past. And now all you got to do is resist him and he will flee from you. And it's an important thing. As we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. People today ask questions. Well, you know, is it really okay for God to punish someone eternally just for some temporal sin that they've committed? The, the, the focus is not on the sin. The focus is on the one sinned against. God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. Because you have sinned against almighty God. You face the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul, as the catechism says. God requires that his justice be satisfied. But as we pointed out already, his justice is also satisfied when Jesus Christ, his son, steps up and says, I will take that. I will take that curse. I will take that judgment. I will take that wrath. 
Because if this judgment and wrath was the end of the matter, we would be of all people most miserable. But when the one seated on the throne declares, it is done, he is echoing his own words from the cross where he cried with a loud voice, it is finished. And at that moment, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we turn to him not fearing the end of the world or judgment or Satan or the beasts or any of these things, we turn to him, we trust in him, we receive his grace and we take him at his word. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. For in Christ and in his church, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the promise of the Lord. Thanks be to God.